Hi, my name is David Narita. I'm leading this session on cultural competency in healthcare because ultimately I believe this. Everyone should have the opportunity to experience the gospel free from sociocultural barriers. Our family served in Cambodia for 13 years in various roles, and I'm an adjunct professor at William Jessup University where I teach cultural anthropology and global health. So today we're gonna to be discussing cultural competency. And we have four objectives here. It's to recognize cultural influences in how health and healthcare are defined, sought and delivered. To try to reflect and appreciate our own cultural biases. To review a framework that can aid in developing cultural competency, not just in the healthcare setting, but in general, in whatever, wherever our work and ministry brings us and fourth, to explore some case studies that reinforce these principles in practice. I want to start with something that I call the red string principle. So part of our settling into Cambodia was our language and culture learning. Tao was my instructor, and he routinely pointed out things that he thought were helpful for me in understanding our new, our new environment. So one day he said, the red strings that you see everywhere in Cambodia are symbols of protection. So they tie red strings on their wrists and in many other places like a good luck charm. Really? I guess I've seen a couple, but you make it sound like they're everywhere. And I walked out the door and felt like I was in a different world because there were red strings everywhere on people, doors, trees, motorcycles, cars, everywhere. So let me tell you what the red string principle is. If you name something, you'll see it. Just like all those red strings. They were there before, I just wasn't looking for them, so I didn't, I didn't see them. And if you name something, you can understand it. Those strings had new significance, new meaning to me. And if you name something, you can engage with it. Well. You know, what do I think about those strings? What would I say if somebody offered me a red string? And I could formulate how I'll respond, and then I have some control. So today we're going to be talking about cultural competency, and I want to bring your attention to some of those red strings. It's things you already know, but in naming them, I hope you'll be able to see these issues more, you can understand their roots, and you can engage more effectively with others. So just by way of definition, uh, cultural competence is the ability to understand, communicate with, and effectively interact with people across cultures. And at the end of today, <clears throat> you're not going to have all the answers, but hopefully you'll know where to look, where to start asking your questions. First, we need to recognize how strongly culture impacts our views of health. Lynn Payer was a New York Times health editor, and she said, while living in Europe, I was struck by the differences between U.S. and European medicine. Why did the French talk about their livers all the time? Why did the Germans blame their hearts for their fatigue? Why did the British operate so much less than the Americans? And why did my French friends become upset when I said I had a virus? So just consider these things. Some of the most commonly prescribed drugs in France to dilate cere uh, cerebral blood vessels have been considered ineffective in England and America. And German doctors prescribe seven times the amount of digitalis-based drugs than other European colleagues. Drug doses have varied 10 to 20 times in strength from country to country. French people have been seven times more likely to receive their drugs in a suppository form. Mastectomy rates have been three times higher in New England than in England. Low blood pressure has been treated with 85 different medications and hydrotherapy in Germany. The WHO found doctors in different countries diagnosed different causes of death, even when shown identical information. And American rates for coronary bypass have been 
28 times that of some European countries. So why do you think that this is? We could say perhaps some countries take a more scientific approach than others. It's possible. We could recognize that there's different patterns of illness, like uh, there's regional variations in illness, such as diabetes or hypertension across communities in the US. Maybe how we document or measure things is different from country to country. And we could certainly see the issues of access and infrastructure, that it's easier to get cosmetic surgery in America than, say, Somalia. So all these pieces are part of the bigger puzzle, but I think a large part of that difference lies in culture. Uh, so when we think of culture, a lot of times we think about the foods we eat or what we like to wear, the holidays we celebrate, but it encompasses our values and our world perspective. You know, it determines what's important to us. And in the context of the slide, it's, it determines what we incentivize through things like our medical payment system. Our culture forms our individual preferences, and those preferences in turn drives our norms in society. So what do we see as normal behavior? You know, what constitutes morality or honor or beauty? These are all culturally defined things. Or what is health? What's considered normal aging and what's something that we feel needs to be fixed? And culture helps connect the dots in our minds. So what causes things to happen? You know, what are the roles our various organs play or outside pathogens or medications? So all of these ideas are wrapped up in culture. Just as an example, just with broad sweeps, um, the, Ameri uh, the, the French value thought and Americans value doing. So therefore, the French pay for consultations while the Americans pay for procedures. The French idolize the human form and we Americans, we augment it. So as a result, we perform more surgery than our French colleagues, given the same clinical presentations because of the payment models that we have, because of our views of human form and fertility. And hysterectomies and mastectomy rates are far lower in France. Now, that was a long introduction to say that we all have our cultural biases that influence everything, including how we perceive our world, and health, and how we practice medicine. So I want to take that and jump into a framework for cultural competence. And I tried to keep this short, um, just four points, so hopefully it's something that you could internalize just in our short time together. The first step in developing cultural competence is to learn about culture, starting with our own. So let's just take a moment to define our own American culture. So just think about what our national symbols are, what values those symbols represent, what are our national beliefs, what do we think is normal, and what we expect everyone else to hold to. So let's just take a minute uh, to think about those things. So we might think about an eagle, right? It's individualism versus collectivism. And we're very individualistic in America. And <clears throat> proceeding from that, we value, value liberty, you know, the Statue of Liberty, personal freedoms, having autonomy, being able to make our own decisions. I was saying, you know, with uh, that example with uh, surgery, we're action-oriented. So there's a lot of... There's a lot of values that we as Americans hold to. You get the idea. I show this cartoon to my students. It's not perfect, but it makes a point. 
So one woman is saying, everything covered but her eyes. What a cruel male-dominated culture. And the person uh, <clears throat> that's all covered up says, nothing but her eyes, or nothing covered but her eyes. What a cruel male-dominated culture. This brings me to the idea of the golden rule, the key value that's being expressed in any given situation. So for example, in that previous cartoon, the woman in the bikini, maybe her golden rule or the value that she is expressing is her ability to express herself, self-expression, self-confidence. Whereas the woman in the niqab, her value was modesty or tradition. We need to realize that the same action may have very different values and meanings associated with it. We need to develop a bit of cultural empathy, being able to see things from another cultural perspective. And that's vital to identifying the other person's golden role as well as our own, and uh, being able to interpret the situation that you find yourself in. Invest in language. Learn to speak it or use a trained interpreter. Okay, I know this is a tall order. It's super hard to call into, you know, a language line, a translation line, especially when the patient's 12-year-old bilingual daughter is sitting right there. But we all know the pitfalls of doing that. Speaking the language is better because, well, one, so much is lost in translation, and we know that. We know how easy it is to misunderstand things and to read into things and fill in the gaps when we're using translation. But we also understand people better when we understand their language. So if you're planning on a long-term missions uh, career or working cross-culturally, I'd really encourage you to make this, an inv this investment in language. Ask questions with an attitude of learning. As you know, most people will give you the answer they think you want if they think you're fishing, right? But if you show them curiosity and respect, you have a better chance of gaining their trust. A lot of projects that we saw and did in Cambodia were unsuccessful, but I really believe those could have been avoided with simple questions from the start rather than making assumptions and thinking that they thought like we did and not truly understanding what was going on. And then leading from that, lastly, involve them in their own solutions. What do you think? What do you see as the next steps? Oh, that's great, but I'm concerned about this. What do you think about doing dot, dot, dot? You know, we form partnerships, we build trust, we create ownership. We pay attention to resource issues like time and finances and social issues. And by including them in that, we, we learn what those, what those limitations may be. So just as an example of these last two points, uh, we were in the village one time discussing the importance of boiling drinking water. And at the end, we asked, so why don't you boil your water? And a brave man said, because we don't have firewood. We need to use the wood to cook our food. And that honestly had never occurred to us coming from a resource-rich environment. So they under the, understood the importance of clean drinking water, but we needed to work with them to find culturally appropriate solutions or resource appropriate solutions. So a framework for cultural competence, uh, learn about culture, starting with your own, invest in language, ask questions with curiosity and respect, with no fishing, and involve them in their solutions. I want to move on to three case discussions to help illustrate this framework. 
these are all um, stories that come from our experiences in Cambodia. So, so Pat is a 12-year-old girl with end-stage congestive heart failure due to rheumatic heart disease. She's been on pressors. Our hope was to get her stable enough to go home, but we haven't been too successful in that. And her prognosis is a few days at most. During rounds, the Buddhist cardiologist shares uh, this with her parents. Your daughter is very sick. She may die, but she can be saved with a heart transplant. In Australia, they do heart transplants very safely, but they cost a lot of money. So her parents ask, well, will she have a normal life after the heart transplant? And he said, oh yes, she can get married. She could have children. You'll be grandparents. After rounds, I went to find the parents and the nurse told me that they had left to return to their village so they could start planting vegetables and save some money. They just didn't understand the, the cost and sort of the state that their, that their daughter was in at that time. So just think about this a bit. What are the cultural assumptions, the golden rule that I held to and that the, the cardiologist held to? Well, I know my golden rule that no one, especially a child, should die alone. And to be honest, I had no idea what the cardiologist was thinking. So I found him and I, and I asked, I said, you know, I'm just curious, you gave um, advice to that family, um, given the patient's condition, you know, what? What was the key values, the key things that you're trying to communicate to them, and, and why? And he said, we should not cause suffering. It's the key tenet of Buddhism. So I asked him, so given that, um, you know, what, did, what were you trying to communicate to the family? What was your goal or your roles in that? And, um, and he said, we should give hope. We should allow the parents to feel like they're doing something to help. Uh, and we should remove them from this very difficult situation. And I shared my golden rule, you know, that I, I felt like we knew the daughter was going to die soon. And I wanted the parents to be there with her so that she didn't have to die alone. And he understood my golden rule. He, he understood how valuable that was as well. And unfortunately, Sopit did die alone. But we started to discuss, you know, how could we give hope and comfort to the family while making sure that the next little girl doesn't die without her parents? And we discussed potentially calling in, you know, the Buddhist priest or other family members, you know, really giving the daughter and her and the parents a chance to say goodbye to each other, you know, of timing her death um, perhaps a little more um, closely by withdrawing pressers while the family was there in that situation. You know, but honestly, there wasn't a good general right answer but we understood each other better and we knew that we could work towards better solutions in the future. And there was this door that was open to have these conversations. Ned is an 11 year old boy who fell out of a tree and broke his arm. After seeing several traditional healers, he arrived in our house in Tetney. Uh, sorry, our house, our hospital in Tetney. 
he was intubated, and if he survives, he has a very long and expensive hospital stay ahead. The residents asked, why are we treating this patient when it's so expensive? So what do you guys think? What's the value or the golden rule here for myself, for the residents? So my golden rule is because we're created in the image of God, all life has value. And for the residents, they were thinking we need to be doing the most good for the most people. I mean, we spend so much money in the hospital. Um, the outpatient clinic sees and helps so many more patients, uh, you know, if we're just thinking about money. So this doesn't seem always true that we don't always do the most good for the most people, right? So I asked them further and I said, you know, what else is going on here? What, um, what other ideas, values are you guys holding to? And they said, doesn't Ned deserve this? His parents chose to go to the traditional healer. So they sort of deserve the suffering that they've brought into their life. And what if we're fighting against Ned's karma or his fate? It's, it's pointless. And we talked about this a bit. Actually, we talked about it quite a bit. And I, and I said, well, if he lives, does that mean his fate was to live? And can we know if he's going to live or not if we don't try? So what are reasonable limits that we could set when a boy's life is at stake, you know, given our limited resources? It's hard. There's no right answer. We view things from, from different uh, perspectives with different golden rules. But we can have this conversation and we can understand each other and develop, develop trust. The nice thing in this story is Ned did stay a long time in the hospital and he had equally long uh, period, a period of rehab. But I saw him walking out of that hospital and you know, I never had a chance, but I think if he ever asked me why I spent so much on him, I could have said to him that it's because I've been shown so much grace in my life that I don't deserve, that God spent a lot on me, and God loves you, Ned, and he sent me here to tell you that. Rounds haven't been ideal. The residents ask esoteric questions, and when those questions are turned back on them, or back to them, I should say, they grew increasingly annoyed. So what was I missing, and how could these rounds be improved? What's the golden rule that I have, or the assumptions that I have, and what's the, the golden rule for the residents? So my golden rule is we learn best by thinking through to an answer. You know, we, um, we have a problem and through input and guidance and talking it out, we reach that answer ourselves. The resin's golden rule is a good student knows enough to be able to stump the teacher with a question they cannot answer. And I'm not sure if you've ever been in cultures like this, um, it's, we just view that from a, a neutral perspective, but that's what it is. So the residents were saying, you're robbing us because when I redirected that question back to the group, um, 
I'm not saying whether I know the answer or not. So they studied, but with an eye to find something that would stump me. Ultimately, their desire was to show what they knew, but that was culturally bound in this act of stumping the teacher. So we talked about it. You know, we said, you know, what would make you feel proud about yourself, about what you know, what would help you learn the best? And what we decided uh, together was that many presentations with a resident presenting a t on a topic that's pertinent to his, um, his or her patient, doing that rather than doing the traditional American type of rounds where we walk from bedside to bedside. So they were able to show what they knew. They were able to um, really shine individually and it helped them to study a little differently in a way that I think uh, was more useful for them. So we reviewed this framework for cultural competence, uh, learning about culture, investing in the language, asking questions and involving others in their own solutions. And we discussed three different cases that involved different worldviews uh, different ethical bases uh, for making decisions and different norms or behaviors, different styles for learning. I know I tried to keep this short. Um, thanks so much for listening and I'm looking forward to our discussion and trying to flesh some of these things out more. I could imagine uh, there's going to be a lot of different questions and I'm happy to share some further examples of these of these principles. So again, thanks so much, and we'll be talking very soon.